To walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts. I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy. Yes, well, with Australians set to vote next month, might foreign policy perhaps sit a little more to the forefront in this election campaign? Certainly some of the headlines post that first debate this week suggest it might, related to the Solomon Islands deal with China, and of course there is our relationship, our relationship with China, and things like the AUKUS plans all into the bargain. But there's a full month to go, after all, and generally the bread and butter issues end up dominating. In this April's A Foreign Affair, we plan to test with some specialists how they believe foreign policy issues will play out, what they'd ideally like to see from the major parties, and really whether the question of Australia's place in the world does occupy hearts and minds much. Ought it? Alan Gingell's a long-standing contributor to Australia's international policy development as a former diplomat, former head of ONA, and uh, he's just re-released his seminal book, Updated, Fear of Abandonment, Australia in the World Since 1942. Garana Gurdjic is a senior lecturer in the Department of Government and International Relations at Sydney University and based at the US Study Centre. And James Curran is Professor of Modern History at Sydney University. He's a specialist in the history of Australian-American relations. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Hi, Geraldine. Look, I think we we must start with the agreement between the Solomon Islands and China. Prime Minister Sogavari announced the deal in their parliament this week. It certainly entered our domestic political discussion. Let's hear how he described it. The security treaty, Mr. Speaker, is pursued at the request of Solomon Islands government. We are not pressured. We are not pressured in any way by our new friends. And there is no intention whatsoever, Mr. Speaker, to ask China to build a military base in Solomon Islands. We're insulted. We're insulted by such unfounded stories. Now, Alan Gingell, these events are occupying the minds of many, including, we're told, the US Indo-Pacific Chief, uh, Chief Kurt Campbell, who I think is about to visit Honiara. How do you assess the situation? Well, there's a lot we, we still don't know, uh, Geraldine. We don't have the, the uh, text of the, uh, of the agreement, um, and it would be very helpful to have that. And one of the causes for concern is that we don't know exactly what has been agreed. I do think it is a big deal, though, particularly in, uh, in terms of the approach that the Australian government has been trying to take towards the Pacific. We've been focusing on the Pacific step-up and so on for a long time now, and one of the first uh, results of, uh, of this is this uh, decision by Solomons to go ahead with the, uh, the agreement. There's a lot of domestic politics in it mm. from the, for the Solomons, and so we shouldn't forget about that and see it only in uh, you know, global geopolitical terms. That indeed has been one of the problems you know, from, from the beginning. We have tended to look at the Pacific only uh, through, the, through the prism of the relationship with uh, China rather than its own right. And, you know, the Financial Review's editorial makes the point that the real rifts, well, this is their take on it anyway, the real rifts in the Solomons are domestic inter-island economic inequalities, which no outside players, even the successful Australian-led intervention, Ramsey, between 1998 and 2003, could fully fix. Now, of course, it's possible, I suppose, James Curran, that China could also find themselves, um, you know, bedevilled by this. 
Yeah, well, certainly it would appear that, that the Chinese have a lot more money to throw at the Solomon Islands. I think that's for sure. That's been part of the big, the big issue here. I guess the question is, as Alan has said, we don't know enough about this deal yet. In particular, what will be the trigger for Chinese interventions of their police forces? What will be the trigger for visits by Chinese warships? Because they say they're protecting their their assets. That's right. And that was the problem in the riots last year, that we sent police, Australia, but they were only there to protect critical infrastructure, as I understand it, and were unable, therefore, to protect the uh, a lot of the small businesses which are owned by ethnic Chinese. So this is apparently one of the reasons why uh, the Sol- Solomon Islands Prime Minister has reached out to China. Um, look, it is deeply disturbing. Um, I don't think there's any question about that. It, it does uh, sort of... I mean, the dominant theme in Australian foreign policy history really has been the search for security in the Pacific. This complicates that without a doubt. And all of the language at the moment that it's not a base, it's not this, it's not that, well... We only need to remember what Xi Jinping said to Obama in the White House Rose Garden in 2014, that he wouldn't militarise the uh, islands in the South China Sea. So where this heads from here is profoundly unsettling. Whether or not this shows an emerging pattern that the Chinese believe they have a, a right to intervene to protect their diaspora and their investments. And, of course, we know that the Belt and Road Initiative has over 140 countries mm. signed up to it. So They've got $18 billion. I, I was stunned to mm. read this. $18 billion in debt-driven, debt-driven construction work in the region. That's China's. Uh, mm. um, so that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yeah. And and we know the problem with the Belt and Road has been one of uh, debt, debt trap diplomacy. Um, but the, the question is why as well, why when we've known about this for some time, we were tipped off by the Solomon Islands opposition leader uh, some time ago, why is it only in recent weeks that we've been scrambling to Honiara? Uh, both Australian intelligence officials uh, and now Kurt Campbell is turning up after the deal has been inked. So somewhere, I mean, I think it's inescapable, somewhere someone has dropped the diplomatic ball. One of the things um, that a very interesting suggestion, uh, uh, again, from this uh, Financial Review article is that we could be offering, though you can see the impact on our own domestic politics, um, Australian agriculture could offer a lot to Pacific Islanders, you know, and their remittances might make a very big difference. We could have far more, particularly now that we haven't got backpackers coming from the Northern Hemisphere, we could actually, arguably, have a much bigger engagement, Alan Gingell, which would be deep and possibly very effective. I and mean, what do you think about that? There's no doubt that the Pacific Worker Program has been a huge asset for Australian farmers and for the Pacific uh, as well. It was an idea, actually, that originated at the uh, Lowy Institute uh, with uh, Jenny Hayward-Jones originally, and uh, it serves our mutual interests, labour mobility throughout the the region is one of the most important uh, contributions that uh, we can make to these uh, small small island states. Mm. Okay, well, look, let's leave that for the moment because I think there's probably going to be more coverage of that mm. and, and move on to the broader issue of what you'd all like to see being more debated respectfully, hopefully, during our election campaign. To you first, Alan Gingell, because your re-released book, 
um, fear of an abandonment, emphasises something quite important, I think, that our national myths are not of diplomacy, they're of military daring do, sometimes of peacekeeping, yet you say there's a lot that could be lionised, but it just simply has not captured public imagination and might well influence whether we have these sorts of debates or not. That's right, uh, Geraldine. Both the Department of Foreign Affairs and successive governments, I think, have been have been very reluctant to publicise uh, issues of success in Australian uh, diplomacy. The general tendency is to draw the curtain around and and pretend that nothing uh, uh, much was uh, going on there. But we do need to, we do need to tell these stories. Uh, much better than we have. One of the things that we've been trying to do in the Australian Institute of International Affairs, which I'm, um, I'm the president, is to uh, to publish the accounts of some of the uh, practitioners, like the term we had on the uh, UN Security Council, which made real real progress in a number of, of areas uh, relating to women and girls, for example. Mm. Um, I might even come to Gurana now, because... Garana, Mark Beeson from the UTS had this interesting article in the conversation and he said many people in Australia bang on about creative middle power diplomacy, but it remains conspicuous by its absence, referring to Australia. Do you agree, by the way? Well, I think that there are two chronic issues that Australia needs to address when it comes to foreign policy. One is the issue of managing its foreign affairs uh, in the time of a great power transition and positioning itself, obviously, uh, in in a way that provides uh, most security uh, and minimizes uh, threats uh, in terms of the the way that U.S.-China relations are going to go. And I I think that we've already seen this sort of change from uh, the rhetoric where China was a challenge to now dealing with China that has changed. And I think that in that sense, there is a bipartisan consensus um, as to where Australia stands. Now, in terms of how it proceeds um, in these sort of middle power ways uh, and what sort of partnerships it might pursue and fora of engagement beyond just the alliance uh, is yet to be seen and obviously will depend on uh, who wins the election. But another issue, and I said that there are two chronic issues, is climate change. And obviously, this is something that is very much an issue that is intermestic. Uh, it has to be addressed at both the domestic and international level, but certainly something that we have to see uh, being done in a way more serious way. And while still, to an extent, we see a kind of constellation of powers out in the world that are uh, leaning more towards action at this point in time, uh, rather than inaction, uh, as we've seen under the previous uh, US administration. See, it's interesting, because I think probably a lot of listeners will say, well, climate change, you know, that's got nothing to do with diplomats and foreign policy people. That's got, that's environmentalists, you know, and that's engineers. So it's interesting that you're positioning it as part of very much a, a foreign policy um, sensibility as well. 
It's very much the amplifier and the accelerator of everything that is negative in the international system at the moment. So if you think about the future of conflicts, if you think about the patterns of migration and similar, all of these things are going to be negatively impacted if we see the rise in average temperature, if we see the rise in sea levels and similar. And this can't uh, be stressed in enough. And if anything, I've just come back from Europe um, where NATO is, for instance, preparing the new strategic concept where climate change is going to make its way into strategic thinking now for uh, the biggest military alliance, because it's just simply uh, the question that is too big to ignore. And one that has been for better or for worse, securitize, but certainly it is not just about, you know, what we can do in terms of recycling or um, things, obviously, that we should be doing uh, as individuals, but very much part and parcel of um, of calculations uh, when it comes to just real politics. Very, very interesting. Could I just add, add to that, going back to our first discussion, that, uh, of course, climate change is one of the critical issues for us in the Pacific uh, as we as we address the uh, the problems there, the you know uh, complaint that you hear often from Pacific leaders is that Australia keeps saying that it cares about the Pacific and its security needs, but the principal security need, uh, which is to do something about climate change, not just sea level rise, which is very long term, but the what we see every year, which is increased uh, extreme weather events and tidal surges. Uh, and so on. And Australia hasn't been able, under this government anyway, to play in that uh, area. And that's, uh, and that's a real diplomatic impediment to us in the region. And James Curran, your thoughts on what you'd like to see discussed? Well, I just returned to, to Alan's earlier point about, yeah, why, why is it that we don't really sort of celebrate a diplomatic tradition uh, in this country? I mean, there are some some shining moments, whether it, whether it be, you know, Everett at the United Nations and the critical role he played in the formation of that, the Cambodia peace settlement um, in the 80s, late 80s, the creation of APEC, the creation of the APEC Leaders Forum, um, Paul Keating's security agreement with Indonesia in 1995, which I think is always worth having a look back at. Things could be very different if that was still in place. I think, you know, what's really happened in the last almost 25 years now is this kind of psychological shift. It's always been there. That is to say how much importance Australia ascribes to its standing in the great power capital. We had it with London up until they uh, you know, left for the European community, but we've now got it with Washington. And because we see ourselves as being on the vanguard and the front line of the new Cold War, we tend to put enormous store in how we're perceived in Washington. I mean, there was a recent article, I think, in the Financial Review about how we're the talk of the town in Washington. We, we gain enormous kudos from this. But the point is, it's all right to preen yourself in Washington, D.C. What we haven't seen here, and what I think there needs to be after the election, is a debate about... I mean, this country has now become not so much even a handy base for the United States in the region, but an essential one. Now, what are the consequences of that for freedom of, of uh, policy manoeuvre, flexibility in policy? Now, this doesn't need to be done in a kind of a really cheap grab bag, radical nationalist way where you're poking the great power in the eye or kicking them in the shins. But there is an important question here about 
freedom of Australian policy and whether or not we are now locked into a, an American Asia strategy whose objectives are not altogether clear. That is very interesting. Uh, James Lawrenson from um, uh, the Australian Centre for uh, Research, uh, Australian China Research Institute, they did a big poll recently and they said essentially there's no material difference between the major parties' China policies now. Instead, the distinctions between the coalition and Labor are confined to how such policies might be best carried out, which I suppose goes to the core of what you're talking about. So you do think we have... We don't have to be like this? You think there are choices for us? I I certainly don't think that diplomacy is dead. I certainly don't think that we need to look at Southeast Asia through the prism of the American alliance entirely. So what the Labor Party have said is that they are going to change the tone now. Well, they're going to have more of an overt emphasis, I think, on diplomacy. That's right. That's what they say. And Penny Wong has said she'll send an envoy into Southeast Asia to listen to see how those countries are still engaging with China but hedging at the same time. Now, I'm not saying that's the magic bullet to fix the Australia-China relationship. We've got, a, we've got a China that's more intimidatory than it's ever been. They're not taking off the economic coerc- coercive measures. There's still the 14 grievances sort of floating in the ether. Um, it's not going to be easy, but a different tone, you know, is not, is not going to go uh, unwelcome, I think. Maybe I'll ask Garana this. How do you think a different tone from Australia would be received in Washington, Garana? Well... In terms of the U.S. perspective on relations with China, I think that the main divide in the scholarship and analytical communities is the extent to which U.S. can cooperate with China under the conditions of strategic competition, right? We've seen um, under uh, the Trump administration, the paradigm change, right? Competition Mm -hmm. is now the dominant paradigm. We've gone from... uh, Uh, the era of of sort of uh, U.S. unipolarity or unipolar moment, which lasted for a couple of decades, depending on where you want to put those uh, temporal delimitations to the era of great power competition. But I don't think it's settled in the U.S. as well, the extent to which U.S., can cooperate or even coordinate on some issues with China. And I think that this was made clear, for instance, in uh, the confirmation hearings of the Biden cabinet when Anthony Blinken, uh, the Secretary of State, said that the relationship with China has to be competitive where it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must be. And again, if you just go through uh, the the long list of books and and articles that have been published over the past couple of years, it's not fully settled. There are obviously those that are advocating basically something that looks very much like containment. But there are those that say um, that U.S. would primarily be best placed to Mm. practice some sort of Jeffersonian foreign policy and look inwards and basically... Uh, start from home building and nation building uh, rather than than exert itself as much uh, on the foreign front because the nature of competition, what, what is different from, say, the Cold War period is the extent to which this competition is economic, not, secu- and not just uh, based in security and terms. And technological, yes. And look, Absolutely. you know, but at least the Americans can talk to the Chinese about this. We can't even at the moment <laughs> talk to the Chinese. I mean, that's the extraordinary. Distinction. Now, look, looming over all of our discussions really is the terrible war in Ukraine, which I fear could be entering an even more bloody phase if reports 
about extra troops being sent there are right and the appointment of the Commander-in-Charge, General Dornikov. This sort of audio just reminds us, I suppose, of what is playing out and will continue to do so. Soviet tanks crushed democratic uprisings, but the resistance continued until finally, in 1989, the Berlin Wall and all the walls of Soviet domination, they fell. They fell, and the people prevailed. But the battle for democracy could not conclude and did not conclude with the end of the Cold War. Over the last 30 years, the forces of autocracy have revived all across the globe. Its hallmarks are familiar ones. Contempt for the rule of law. Contempt for democratic freedom. Contempt for the truth itself. Today, Russia has strangled democracy, has sought to do so elsewhere, not only in its homeland. President Biden speaking at the end of March in Warsaw, and the downstream impact is also considerable, like who's deemed appropriate to sit around a G20 table, for instance, to talk politely. Indonesia holds the rotating presidency right now and is under pressure to exclude Russia from the meeting later this year. Here's Scott Morrison last month reflecting on the prospect of sitting at that G20 table. The idea of sitting around a table with Vladimir Putin, um, who the United States... um, are already uh, in the position of calling out war crimes in Ukraine, for me, um, is, 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 a, is a step too far. I mean, Alan, if people do sit around a table with a man whose armies are targeting routinely civilians and POWs, where truly does this take us in world affairs? I mean, surely it's back to something from before the 20th century. Well, look, it's a it's a really uh, difficult and and important question here, uh, Geraldine. Uh, as James, as a historian, knows, you know the the search for a seat at the table at which international decisions is made has been a really long part of the big part of the Australian diplomatic story back to you know imp- imperial days and through uh, Evid and the UN and so on. And when we were talking before about Australian diplomatic accomplishments. Well, I think Kevin Rudd's uh, role, um, supportive role, but uh, important in setting up the G20 uh, after the global financial crisis uh, was was a re- really significant. And it, it has, for the first time, made Australia uh, part of the central organising countries of the of the international system. Now we are faced, as you say, with this, you know, quite uh, important moral and mm. uh, ethical question: uh, Do you sit down with people who uh, who have committed the sort of uh, crimes that we've seen uh, from Russia in Ukraine? Look, my concern about this is that this is hugely important to Indonesia. President uh, Widodo is the is the chair of the of the G20, Indonesia's prestige is tied up in it. So my belief is that what Australian uh, leaders should be doing is going into the Indonesians, as we did uh, during the APEC period, and saying, how can we help you? This is a big, difficult uh, issue. We've all got to manage, uh, manage this, but we want to work with you in doing that. Mm. Would we have sat around the table with the Khmer Rouge? (laughs) 
Well, we did sit around the table with the Khmer Rouge. Uh, that's precisely the point, isn't it, of the Cambodian uh, uh, peace settlement? Well, you know, yeah, in, once we were into a peace negotiation. Some, some, sometimes you have to sit at, sit at tables with uh, uh, odious people. That's, uh, so I don't know that that's the answer in this case. I'm not saying that uh, you mm. have to sit down with the, uh, with the Russians, but you do have to work very closely with the hosts, Indonesia, in this case, to ensure that whatever happens, we're not seeing the collapse of that whole G20 uh, structure, which, among other you know, bad uh, repercussions at a time when the global economy is going to get much uh, uh, harder as it would put Australia on the outer. Oh, dear, values versus interests. Uh, James Curran, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I agree with Alan. I, I don't think it was quite necessary for, for Morrison to, again, sort of go out front like this publicly uh, and, and try to pressure the Indonesians to uh, exclude Russia from that summit. Um, that, that can be left to others. I mean, that could be left to Boris Johnson, uh, for example. The way to do it is, is quietly behind closed doors and, and, and offer assistance. Um, unfortunately, this is right. At some point, people are going to have to talk to Putin to sort this out as horrifically thuggish and brutal as he is, and it's appalling what's taking place. But surely not in a normal... <clears throat> surely it's got to be part of a negotiation. Oh, sure. I mean, this but... this is normalising it, sitting at the G20 with him, isn't it? Um, how much will be achieved at the G20 on Ukraine? Probably very little. Uh, will it even be a matter for discussion? Um, mm. I presume it will be. Whether or not Putin even attends is, is another question. Uh... I think there are lots of questions about the sort of the end game here that no one really knows. Will it end up in partition of Ukraine? It probably looks more increasingly like that. Um, whether or not it's a it's a good idea to be bleeding uh, Putin dry at this time, which could potentially lead to the collapse of Russia itself, which would create all sorts of uh, economic and social consequences in Europe uh, of a kind we haven't seen for a, for a very long time. And I think uh, you know to get get back to what you know, the point Garana was making earlier. This um, has given the taste to some in Washington about leading again uh, and some of the older neocon voices, which I think had been um, discredited in the wake of Iraq, are now resurgent. There's a lot of talk about regime change um, where Russia is concerned uh, and that's bleeding over into talk about strategic clarity on Taiwan rather than strategic ambiguity. So the kind of America that a new Australian government will be dealing with you know, emboldened by what it's been doing in the Ukraine and leading the Western response, but also becoming more and more hardline on China. I mean, the moderate voices in, in Washington on China uh, have basically, I think, been stampeded. Last word to you, Gorana. Well, just in terms of the way that the war in Ukraine has been framed is as the struggle between democracies and autocracies. And we know from very early on in his presidency, President Biden had set the agenda to promote policies that would not only renew democracy in the United States, uh, lest we forget, you know, uh, January 6th uh, of, of mm. last year, but also that would promote policies of democratic renewal uh, around the world. And there were a lot of question marks around that. Uh, just last year, when Biden convened that summit for democracy, there was a lot of criticism uh, 
especially around who actually got invited. And this is that question of, you know, who gets to sit sit at the table. So while I, I agree that some of these things, you know, ultimately are just symbolic, um, they, they do offer a kind of legitimacy to some of these actors. And Russia was expelled from one other uh, group mm. of, of a smaller sort. Um, so G of 8 uh, was obviously one that included Russia. It became group of seven uh, following uh, Russia's annexation of Mm. Crimea. That's right, in 2014. So I think, I mean, and and there was that point, which is a good one, would would, uh, Putin even attend this? Uh, That's a question, right? Uh, So, uh, and and how that would look, but maybe uh, it's not time and the place. However, I would say that this gives us a, a lot of food for thought around the world following Ukraine. And and what I mean here is that we have a lot of questions now about international ordering. And um, there is one end of the debate that advocates this idea of democratic clubbiness, right? That the best forms of cooperation are ones uh, where we see countries that are not just like-minded, but that basically are are of of the same uh, regime kind of orientation. Whereas others would say it would be much better and wiser to form coalitions rather than uh, just be wedded to democratic principles uh, in a world that's increasingly multipolar uh, and not to maybe split hair um, if the the kind of strategic competition uh, remains this sort of dominant paradigm. Mm. Uh, I don't have the answer because I'm not a policymaker, but I do think that there are important questions that will need to be answered, uh, whether it's at the level of a middle power such as Australia, or in fact, in DC, uh, which continues to, you know, on every uh, single day, uh, you know, have have, uh, these different sort of takes between values and uh, interests, uh, obviously, um, given its portfolio of allies and partners. Oh, you sort of know why this doesn't enter the political discussion in a four. It's so hard. Look, thank you all. That was a very interesting conversation. James Curran, Alan Gingell and Garana Gurdjic. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.